0: What a wonderful celebration this morning of our risen Lord. Just such a joy to hear voices lifted up in praise as we exalt our Savior. One of the things I love about an Easter celebration is the fact that we are proclaiming the center of our faith. I usually think of Easter in terms of the grand scheme of things, the central holiday of the Christian calendar. But more than that, celebrating the very keystone of our faith. You know what a keystone is? If you have an archway made of stone, the keystone is the top center. You take out the keystone and the whole thing collapses. And that's how Paul speaks of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then he describes the preaching of the gospel as meaningless. If there is no resurrection, then our faith, all of this, is absolutely in vain, to no purpose. If there is no resurrection, then we are still in our sins. If there is no resurrection, then we are deceived. And to be pitied above all people. But Christ is risen from the dead. You know the reply, right? He is risen indeed. Let's say it. The Lord is risen. risen The Lord is risen. risen The Lord is risen. risen Amen. What a glorious truth to celebrate. This is the center of all of history. This is the keystone of the faith. This is the justification of the claims of Christ. Paul says that he was proclaimed, he was declared, he was proven with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus is risen, we can believe what he had to say. This is The guarantee of our justification. Again, the Apostle Paul says, He, Christ, was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. This is a guarantee of our resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. And all of us who believe in Jesus one day are to follow. The most important thing that ever happened... That's what we celebrate today, for all of history, for all people, throughout all time, in every place. But this week, I've been thinking more of the resurrection in the small scale, continuing to read in the book of John this week, in John chapter 20. We read much of it this morning in which the Apostle describes the appearances of Jesus Christ after He rose from the dead. So very personal. And it helps me to realize that we on this morning and every morning and every single day of our lives must not focus only on the grand scheme of things. Each one of us needs a personal encounter with the risen Savior, a life-changing encounter with the risen Savior. In John chapter 20, we see three such encounters. Again, we read most of that first encounter, that of Mary Magdalene, when Jesus met her beside the graveside, and when Jesus meets her in her grief. This passage is filled with expressions that help us know how very personally and deeply Mary was grieved at the events of that weekend. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we know that Mary was a disciple of Jesus. She had been following Him for almost the entirety of His public ministry, beginning from the day that He delivered her of seven demons. Now, we don't actually have a description of that event in the Scriptures. They just refer to it. But we know from the other examples of demon possession in the New Testament that this woman was living in a horrible existence as she was under control of the one who seeks to steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus came into her life, and delivered her powerfully. And from that moment, she became a follower, not because she believed the grand scheme of things, although she certainly did, but because of her encounter with the Savior. She was one of the women, and there were a number of them who followed along with all of the rest of the disciples, but actually supported the ministry of Jesus and the disciples as they traveled through Galilee and Judea and carried on the preaching of the good news and the healing of those who were in need. She financially was in a position in order to be able to support Jesus and the rest of the disciples. Her devotion to him was so very deep that she was one of the few who stood at the foot of the cross on the day that Jesus was crucified and observed the horrible sufferings that her beloved Savior went through. And as she was traumatized by that, she stayed until the end. In fact, when Joseph of Arimathea came to remove Jesus' body from the cross and carry him to the tomb, Mary was there as well and she followed along and she observed as Jesus was laid in that tomb on that Friday evening. Then she went home along with the rest to observe the Sabbath. But first thing, even earlier than we got here for sunrise service, first thing, Mary was at the tomb of Jesus on that Sunday, bringing with her the spices necessary to anoint the body of her very precious Savior. And she is so very distressed. She had come to express her grief in such an appropriate way when we are so deeply grieved, it helps to do something. And here she has the opportunity to anoint the body of her beloved Savior. But even that is taken away from her. And you can hear the pathos. You can hear the, the grief in her words. They have taken my Lord away. And I don't know what they've done with him. She is broken-hearted, beside herself with grief, alone in a garden, her hopes crushed, asking that question, I don't know what to do. She's blinded by this grief. We've read that, that Jesus comes to her. She doesn't even really fully turn to him. She acknowledges that somebody's there, supposes that he's the gardener. Numbly asks the same question that she had already asked the disciples and the angels. Just the same thing going through her head. What have they done with his body? Where can I find him? Where is my Lord? And in her grief, in her weeping, Jesus speaks to her. There's a couple of things that that stand out in what Jesus has to say. First of all, we see that he addresses her as woman. That kind of is a little bit abrasive to us, and so it's necessary to address. In fact, if you have the newest edition of the NIV, they have a footnote there and says, when Jesus addresses her as woman, this is in no way disrespectful. And of course, we know from the ministry of Christ that he held women in high regard, He affirmed the dignity and the worth of the women with whom he came into contact. He took the time to bring healing to women who were in need, to speak compassionately to a woman caught in sin, to preach faith to those who had lost hope, Women were among his first disciples. We've already mentioned that several women were providers of his ministry. When he speaks this word woman, it, is ac- it actually carries a note of affection. In fact, just one chapter earlier, in one of Jesus' final moments as he's hanging on the cross and he sees his mother there and John, the disciple whom he loves, he says, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple. Here is your mother. And so there's a note of compassion as Jesus asks this question. Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She answers with the same despair, with the same numbly repeated question out of her grief. Jesus hasn't quite broken through yet. So then he speaks her name. Mary. And that one word changes her completely. It's a word that remakes her life. That one word transforms her world. Mary. Jesus had earlier said that a good shepherd knows his sheep, that a good shepherd calls his sheep by name that his sheep recognize his voice and respond to him. And so here the good shepherd calls the name of Mary. He sees her. He speaks to her heart, and she responds. She understands what has happened. She falls at his feet, and she cries out, Rabboni, my teacher, She's called him my Lord. She's filled with joy at recognizing that her Savior has come to her in her moment of need, and she falls at his feet. She grabs hold of his feet. And then we come across a very interesting phrase, a very interesting sentence, John 20, 17, where Jesus says, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. I have for many years been puzzled by what Jesus is saying here. It started out because sometime in my youth, I don't remember exactly when it was, Somebody said that Jesus is in this mystical period before his, but after His resurrection, but before His ascension, His body in a transitional time, and that, that perhaps a touch would, would violate His risen flesh before He is glorified. I, I never understood. That's what I'm trying to get across. It doesn't make any sense now because it didn't make any sense then. This is not some metaphysical statement on Jesus' part about how his body is untouchable at this moment. In fact, we know that's not true because Mary was already holding on to him. The word that he says here is don't continue to hold on to me or don't, don't grasp on uh, firmly. Um, in fact, later on, Jesus says to Thomas, touch me my hands, place your hand in my side. This is not something odd about the body of Christ. In fact, it's a very simple statement on Jesus' part, a very practical reality about Mary not simply clinging on to this glorious thing she has seen, but going out and spreading the good news. Having Net Mary, in her point of need, in her grief, He lifts her out of her grief and then gives her a purpose outside of herself. One commentator put it this way. Jesus is saying, I haven't yet ascended to the Father, so you don't need to hang on to me as if I were about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy and sharing the good news, not clutching me as if I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. Don't just stay here holding on to me. You have a purpose now. Lifted out of your grief, go out and fulfill The commission that I am giving you. Go tell my brothers. Jesus sees us and knows us. In our grief and in our pain, the resurrected Lord comes to us and calls us by name. You are mine. And I am enough. Now go out and accomplish the purpose that I've called you to. If Mary has been blinded by her sorrow, the ten disciples are absolutely paralyzed by their fear. And so we have read about Mary going to the disciples. We'll read it again. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hand and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The disciples' fear was justified. They had just witnessed the Jewish leaders pouring out their wrath in order to crush what they viewed as a rebellion. They observed as Jesus was tortured inhumanely and horribly. And then after those hours of torture, then he was hung on a cross, the worst possible death that could be imagined. They saw, the disciples had seen the wrath of the powers that be poured out on that one man, and they knew they were next. And so they fled, and they locked the door. They didn't want that to happen to them. It's quite natural for them to hide, paralyzed by their fear, but in that paralyzing fear, forgetting everything that Jesus had told them, forgetting His promises, forgetting the fact that He had already predicted that He would die in Jerusalem, but that He would be raised and that they would be His witnesses. And so, cowering there in fear, Jesus comes to them in their point of need. Now, we see here that the resurrected body is different than the one that you and I have. Doors don't matter to Him. Walls don't matter to Him. Suddenly, He appears among them. And if we remember when the disciples were in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee and Jesus came to them walking on the water, they thought it was a ghost. They were terrified. They cried out in fear. So we, we are not given a description of the initial moments of Jesus appearing there, but you can imagine there was some chaos in that room. We do know that Jesus had to convince them it really was Him. Jesus showed them the wounds in His hand. Jesus demonstrated to him that it was indeed he, and that he was indeed risen from the dead. He spoke the traditional greeting, peace be upon you. He revealed himself to them, and when they were finally convinced, they were overjoyed. Sorrow turned into joy. But something still had to happen for these disciples in their life-changing encounter with Jesus. And so, once again, he says, peace be upon you. Jesus is not simply greeting them in the traditional way. Jesus is pronouncing upon them shalom. He's pronouncing upon them the peace of God, on these men who had been paralyzed by fear and who were so ashamed of the fact that they had abandoned their Savior, that they had fled, Peter having denied Jesus three times, in their fear and shame, Jesus comes to them and pronounces peace, shalom, well-being. This describes the state of blessedness that we can have when we are in God's favor. And to those broken, wretched men, Jesus can pronounce the peace of God's favor because He had purchased it for them. It wasn't because they deserved God's favor. It was because Jesus bought God's favor for them when He was on the cross. We... Like them, don't deserve God's favor. It might be fear, it might be doubt, it might be shame, it certainly is guilt. Every one of us, apart from Jesus Christ, are separated from God. There is no peace, there is enmity. That is our heart's position apart from Christ towards God. Enmity. He is our enemy, not because He wants to look on us that way, but because we have placed ourselves in opposition to Him. The disciples fled because they were motivated by self-preservation. The disciples were trapped in fear because they were looking out for number one. And as we go through our lives looking out for number one, we are living at enmity with God. But Jesus went to the cross to take upon Himself our guilt, to take upon Himself our shame, to take upon Himself the punishment that we deserved, to absorb God's wrath poured out, the wrath of God that we deserve poured out on Jesus on the cross, so that we can be freed from our burden of sin and brought back into peace with God as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes into that room, He is actually pronouncing peace as a real manifested condition for the first time. Every other pronouncement of peace was a wish looking forward to the moment that the kingdom of God would be established and peace would come. Now, for the first time, the cross is behind. Redemption has been accomplished. And Jesus can come to these shameful men and say, peace is real, and I give it to you. Meeting them in their point of need, transforming their lives and now sending them out. Verses 21 through 23, again Jesus said, "'Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you.' And with that, he breathed on them and said, "'Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven.'" Jesus had already told the disciples he was sending them out. And look where they ended up, cowering in fear behind locked doors. What's supposed to be the difference now? This encounter with the risen Savior is transformative because he can give them the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them the same breath that breathed life into dust. And we had the first man. The same breath that the prophet described coming from the sovereign Lord to the valley of dry bones that were reanimated. Jesus breathes life into these wretched men. And they are empowered with the life of Christ flowing through them to carry out the purpose for which He is sending them. And He sends them not only with power, He sends them with authority. Yes, it is the divine purview to forgive sins. But He says, you are my emissaries. You are going out to pronounce the good news of forgiveness for everyone who will believe. And so from fear locked behind Uh, uh, shut up behind locked doors, these disciples are transformed with the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Jesus Christ to go out and proclaim the good news. There's one more encounter in John chapter 20, such a great interaction, and that is with Thomas. Jesus meeting Thomas in his doubt. Let's read together verses 24 and 25. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is a firm skeptic in the matter of the resurrection. He makes it very clear that he's not going to accept anybody else's testimony about it. He has to see it for himself. In fact, he uses a good old double negative here. There ain't no way. There ain't no way. It's not exactly a translation, but the double negative is there in the Greek as well. He is confirmed in his skepticism, but he also gets a bad rap. Honestly, it is not fair to call him doubting Thomas without calling the rest of them the doubting disciples and without recognizing the doubts that rack us as well. I mean, think about what he was asking for compared to what they had already received. Jesus had told all of them very clearly, more than one time, we are going to Jerusalem. I will suffer, I will die, on the third day I will be raised from the dead. None of them accepted it and anticipated. All of them were shocked at the idea of a resurrection. Yeah, Thomas didn't believe the testimony of the ten, but remember the ten had already heard the testimony of Mary Magdalene and the other women they came to them and said, we've seen the Lord. He's raised from the dead. Peter and John had a foot race to the grave, to the tomb, and they saw that it was empty. And John said that he had begun to believe at that moment. But then that very evening, they're still behind the locked doors, racked by their fears. And so, Yeah, Thomas doesn't believe their testimony, but they didn't take anybody's word for it either. In fact, they had to see Jesus' hand and sides before they would believe. And Thomas says he has to have the exact same experience. Now, he should have believed. He should have anticipated. He should have understood But how very condescending in the good sense of the word. How very compassionate and understanding is Jesus towards Thomas. As he gives him this special appearance. Verse 26. A week later his disciples were in the house again. Still in the house, by the way. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Have you ever considered the fact that this appearance was just for Thomas? There's nothing new here no new revelation about who Jesus is, no brand new pronunciation of peace upon anyone. This was the shepherd leaving the 99 to go to the one. This was Jesus specifically meeting Thomas in his point of need, in his doubt. This is Jesus not despising our doubt but recognizing that it is an inevitable part of our human condition and being so very gracious as to arrange things once more to give Thomas exactly what he needs in order to believe and restoring for him the faith that is necessary for him to go on. I don't know about you, but I'm just so grateful. Because I have doubts. There are times that they creep in. I think it's probably true for all of us. And Jesus does not despise our doubt. He meets us at our point of need. In fact, it's really interesting how it's translated here. I don't know why they do it. We read, stop doubting and believe as if doubting is a bad thing. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Doubt happens. Doubt is part of life. The question is, what do you do with your doubt? Do you allow doubt to turn into confirmed, willful unbelief, or do you allow Jesus to meet you in your moment of doubt so that you are confirmed in your faith? Jesus is willing to meet us where we are, the risen Savior in all of His glory at the right hand of the Father comes to us in our point of need, providing exactly what is necessary for our faith. And so Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have a life in his name. When Thomas recognizes the risen Savior, everything else falls into place. He doesn't need any confirmation about anything else that Jesus said. He doesn't have any questions about the plan of salvation. The resurrection is the keystone. The resurrection is the central point. If we see the resurrected Lord, then everything else falls into place. And so this book, this gospel, has come full circle. In the very first verses, the evangelist saying, the Word is God. In the very last verses, Thomas saying, you are my God. And Jesus offers a blessing. He offers a blessing on those who have not seen, but have believed. Let's think about that for a minute. Who in that room experienced that blessing? None of them. That word of blessing wasn't for any of those disciples. Wasn't for any of those hundreds to whom Jesus would appear after the resurrection. That word of blessing is for you and for me. John said that he recorded the events of this book for one purpose, and that is that you and I would read it and believe it and have the blessedness of life that comes by placing our faith in His name. And so this morning I would like to ask you to consider the evidence. Now we don't have time to go through the books and books of evidence that have been written about the resurrection of the Savior. I would encourage you to do so if you are skeptical. But just consider the evidence of this passage. I've imagined to myself John coming to his editor, as if he had one, saying, I've got this book. And the editor says, we've got a lot of work to do. You need to be focused. There's so much random stuff in here. Nobody cares about your foot race to the tomb. Well, that's how it happened okay, but then why did you get to the door first and not go in? You're supposed to be the hero here. Well, that's a little bit creepy, but Peter, he's the kind of guy who just charges right in, so I let him do that. Listen, if you are trying to establish a religion here, you need to make a better name for yourself about it. What is this bit about the disciple whom Jesus loved? Who is that? Well, it's me, but I'm not interested in talking about me. I want to talk about Jesus. Okay, that's fine, but if you want a testimony about Jesus that is going to be believed, why, why these women? This is the first century Judea. Nobody is interested in the testimony of a woman. But she was there first. She's the one who saw it but didn't you see it too? Well, here's the thing. I was afraid. That's not going to do you any good. You've got to be the hero of this story. No, Jesus is the hero of this story. In fact, it was only about this moment that I began to actually believe. You've got to be kidding This story is just so very lifelike. It's not the kind of thing that somebody invents, revealing their fears, their weaknesses, their doubts, putting forward the kind of witnesses that nobody would accept to talk about a Savior who is risen. But it's true. The evidence is there not only in what John has to say. The evidence is abundant for anyone who is willing to ask themselves honest questions. And so if you are a skeptic about the actual physical reality of the resurrected Savior who wants to meet you and transform your life, then let me simply ask you to ask honest questions. Jesus had no patience for the questions that were intended to catch him in error. But he was infinitely patient with anyone who came and said, I don't understand. How can this be? Won't you please help me? And in all of his compassion and grace, he will meet you in your moment of need. If only you will ask. If you ask, you will receive. If you seek the Savior, you will find Him. But seek not only answers to questions. Seek a personal encounter. That risen, glorious Savior cares about you. Whether your point of need today is grief or doubt or fear or hopelessness or shame or loss, certainly every one of us have a point of need in sin and guilt. Jesus will come to you like he came to Mary or those ten or poor, misunderstood, doubting Thomas, so that you can cry out, my Lord and my God, so that you can count yourself among those blessed who are saved. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. You are so very gracious, so very patient, so understanding of our need. And how is it that you do not despise us or grow weary of us? It's only because of your great love. Thank you for love that would bring you to our earth to walk among us. Thank you for love that would take you to a cross for our sake. And thank you for love that you make available today. Lord, as we celebrate, guard us from getting so caught up in the big things that we forget about personal need. Will you, by the power of your Spirit today, convict of sin that separates us from you, of righteousness that we don't have but so very desperately need and that we can claim from Jesus? of judgment to come that's so easy to forget about and put off and pretend is never going to happen but is inevitable. Lord, convict us of judgment to come and how all of the judgment was poured out on Jesus on that cross and done away with by His victory over death. Do your work of bringing new life, of engendering faith, of instilling hope. We pray it in Jesus' name, in the name, the powerful name, of our glorious and risen Savior. Amen.